Okay. Well, if you're a guest uh, joining us this morning, we're grateful that you're here. If you're from Linth Baptist Church, we're grateful that you're here. Looking forward to sharing a meal with you after uh, our service here this morning. We continue our series this morning looking at the Gospel of Matthew. And what we've been looking at is how Jesus Christ has been bringing the kingdom of God uh, to bear on this world. And he's doing so by showing his rule and reign and authority as the true uh, king of Israel, as the son of David, and the true hope for the world as the one that was promised to come from the seed of Abraham. And last week, we looked at these, uh, these group of wise men who came to Jesus and were confronted by the wisdom of God and repented of their former lifestyle and fell down before this child and worshipped him. And we said last week that there aren't, uh, as the popular play or song says, there aren't three kings in this text. There's actually two. There's two kings. There's King Herod, as we see in verse 1 and 2, and then there's King Jesus, the one who has been born the King of the Jews. And last week we spent some time talking about one aspect of the story, but this morning we're going to pick up in verse 13 and read down to verse 23, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this second king, this King Herod, and talk about the deep rebellion that exists in the human heart. And then we're going to look at a second point, we're going to see the grace that exists for us in this text, and third, our third point will be called the fulfillment. So this morning our three points are the rebellion, the grace, the fulfillment. The rebellion, the grace, the fulfillment. So would you read along with me, uh, starting in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, down to verse 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose... And took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word to us this morning. And God, as always, we come as people that need to hear from you. 
We've sung this morning and asked you and beseeched you to speak. And we expect and we long for words of life that come to us from the scriptures. We pray, O Lord, that we would be built up and edified, that our sin would be confronted, and that our hope would be renewed and restored as we look at Jesus Christ and all that he is for us. We're grateful, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So point one, the rebellion. What's shocking and striking to us, I think, at the fore here, as we look at this text, as we see in this man, Herod, Jesus, this baby, evoking massive hostility and even hatred. That Jesus, this baby, is evoking such animosity and anger and hatred in Herod's heart. Remember from last week, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born from the king of the Jews? And down a couple verses it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He's troubled because there's a rival king that's come to town. And he's more than troubled because what we'll learn in our text this morning is that when he hears that he's been tricked by the wise men, what Herod does is he, he sends out an edict into this land and this territory of Bethlehem and he says every child, every baby boy, two years old and younger is to be killed, is to be slaughtered. It's a great tragedy. And we know from history the size in the town of, uh, in this region of Bethlehem and in the surrounding area, this probably meant 20 to 30 baby boys, toddler boys that were slaughtered. Jesus evokes hatred in Herod's heart. You know, what's interesting is this man, Jesus Christ, there's really only three possible ways to respond to him. You know, there's the There's the classic, I think, C.S. Lewis, you can call him liar, lunatic, or Lord. Or John Stott in his basic Christianity says there's really only three possible responses. We can either run in fear, we can attack him in anger, or we can bow down in submission. Those are the only possible responses if we truly understand who Jesus Christ is and what he says and what he says about who he is and the reign and authority that he's that he's bringing to this world because Jesus Christ, he claims ultimate sovereignty over every single human being. You know, Jesus doesn't come to us and say, tell me all your needs and I will meet them. Jesus doesn't even come to us and say, give me your intellectual problems and I will answer them. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Jesus says, I am the bread. I am the living water. And the only possible response to him is to either run in fear, attack him in anger as Herod does, or to bow in humble submission as the Magi did. It's amazing, just thinking about coming out of the Christmas season, it's amazing the kinds of things that we sing as we walk through the mall. (laughs) It's amazing what people actually sing walking through Clackamas Town Center on December 22nd. Hail the incarnate deity. Glory to the newborn king. 
king. That newborn king was the reason that 30 baby boys were slaughtered in Bethlehem because King Herod knew what it meant. He knew that the real king of the Jews, he knew that the real king of the world was here and he demanded ultimate and absolute authority and allegiance from every single human being. Jesus still, listen to some of his words from the scriptures, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Says in Luke 6, 46. He demands absolute authority and allegiance over every single human being. And the only possible responses to him are to run in fear, to attack him in anger, or to bow in humble submission. What we see in Herod is we see that this claim of Jesus evokes this rebellion and this hatred. But do we see it in our own hearts as well? Because in Herod, he's not just the villain of the story, though he is. But Herod, in many ways, is the depiction of every single human being. There's a little Herod that exists in all of our hearts. A desire to be our own Lord. A desire to be the sovereign over our own lives. What this text shows us is the depth of the human heart. This is the doctrine of total depravity. This text shows us the truly wickedness of every single human heart. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The apostle will go on to say in Romans chapter 3, he says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you see, realizing that Herod is an extreme case, but do you see what is possible and deep inside your own human heart? We just need to look at human history to see the depravity of man, to see the wickedness of our own hearts. Karl Barth, in his commentary in Romans, commenting on this verse that I just read to us, he says this. He says, the indictment that is, of which we so strongly disapprove of is this one. It is written. It is written, he goes on, the whole course of history pronounces this indictment against humanity. If we are truly going to be reminded of this kind of truth, of this doctrine, we must see that the reality of mankind is persistently before us. The doctrine of original sin is not merely one doctrine among many. Rather, it is the fundamental meaning of all human history. And it emerges from an honest study of history. We look back and we see the wickedness of humankind. We look back in the last hundred years. You realize that the last hundred years of human history have been the bloodiest hundred years in all of human history. If evolutionary biology is true, okay, if we are progressively getting better, or if the human heart is 
natural orientation is primarily good, then why was the last hundred years the bloodiest hundred years in all of human history? Luther, in his larger catechism, said, for our flesh in itself is corrupt and inclined to evil, even after we accept and believe God's word. Heidelberg, question 60, says, in spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me, that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and not kept one of them, and I am still prone to all that is evil. Still prone to all that is evil. So how does this usually look? How does this usually look in our own lives? Well, Luther had a phrase that he said, incurvitus in se. And that is my sermon. Good afternoon. <laughs> incurvitus in se means turned in on itself. He said the natural orientation of the heart is to be oriented towards itself. And Luther will go on to say that this is the massive problem with the world because the human heart is ultimately a self-centered one. It's the reason that we experience all the problems in the world that we do. The problems in the world aren't out there. The problem with the world exists in my own heart because its natural orientation is to be curved in and turned in on itself. The heart of evil is to do exactly what you want to do. Self-reliance is the heart of rebellion against God. The heart of evil is to do exactly what you want to do. Now, isn't that the gospel according to the modern age though? Isn't the gospel according to the modern age to be able to do whatever you want to do? Isn't that the definition of human flourishing? The modern definition of human flourishing is to have the freedom to be whoever and however you want to be. And the definition of oppression or the definition of intolerant or the definition of bigotry is anyone or anything that would prevent you from doing that. Anyone or anything that would prevent you from being your own self-image of who you want to be. Related to sexuality, related to sexual identity, related to anything. And any impingement on that is seen as intolerant. Deep inside our own hearts, we want to be the captain of our own souls. Deep inside our own hearts, we want to be the captains of our own fate. Paul will say in Romans 8, 7, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Like a better translation even than hostile is hatred. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hatred toward God. That's the natural mind. And do we see it? Do we see our own inclination? Do you see the own desire to be little Herods, as it were, in your own hearts? So let's apply it in a few different ways. Let's apply this first point in a few different ways. I said that there's three possible responses. So to the skeptic, if you're here this morning and you're sticking your big toe into the pool of Christianity and you're seeing if the water's warm, let me just remind you that there are three and only three possible responses to Jesus. One is to run in fear. The other is to attack him in anger. And the third is to bow in submission. 
And if your response is not one of these extreme responses, your response is not genuine. There is no possibility for a tepid disposition towards Jesus of Nazareth. It's not possible. It's not intellectually honest to actually look at what he says and what he came to do and sort of have a blah attitude toward it. So in some ways, if you're a skeptic, I would rather you be in a place of running in fear or trying to attack him in anger because at least you're dealing honestly with who Jesus says he is in the scriptures. So that's to the skeptic. Well, second to the Christian. Second to the Christian. Romans 5.1 tells us that since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's justified us. He saved us. We're destined for glory, destined for his kingdom. Our justification is sure. Our standing is sure. And yet, do we see the residual hatred in our own hearts? Do we see what we are still capable of? My friends, it means that we ought have a radical orientation to the word of God, to prayer, to community. It means that even though we have been justified with God and we have peace with God, as Romans 5.1 will tell us, Christianity is not something that we can just glide through. Our life with God, our walk with God is not something that we can just simply kind of put in fourth gear and just sort of slide into heaven as it were. It means that we must be on guard. It, must be that we, it means that we must be vigilant. It means that we must be aware of what's capable in our own hearts and be those that are devoted to community. So we take community so seriously in this church. That's why we push community groups and triads so desperately because we know that we need other people in our lives. That's why we say in our membership covenant that we invite loving criticism into our lives. We invite it. We do that because we know that this residual Herod thing exists in our own hearts. One of the craziest things that I say in the membership class is one of the reasons that you should join a local church is because one day you might need to be excommunicated. That's serious though. It's taking a sober approach to your own humanity to see that I know that though I'm justified and saved by God, I am capable of wicked and awful and evil things still. And I need the body of Christ. I need the community of people around me. Oftentimes when this happens, when the need for this kind of community and devotion to the word and prayer is it happens when our lives are shaken by the storms of life. In this text, it's striking to us how Joseph and Mary respond. They hear God's word three different times and they simply obey. They hear God's word to them and they simply obey. We don't hear anything. The commentators call Joseph quiet Joseph. He never, he doesn't doesn't speak here. He's quiet Joseph. The word of the Lord comes to him And says, go. And the text says, and he rose and they went. And then it says again, the word of the Lord came to him and it says, they rose and they went. And the third time it says that he was warned in a dream to not return back. So he departed to the region of Galilee and raised his son in Nazareth. He simply heard the word and he obeyed it. Now, you realize that all the facts that Joseph and Mary were experiencing were contrary to the promise. 
the facts that they were experiencing were contrary to the promise that this will be Jesus who will save his people from their sins. Immediately, this young boy, when he's born, there's, an op- there's a chance to kill him and murder him. So immediately they must exile themselves down to Egypt where we know from history that there was a massive Jewish population that were these expatriates of sorts that were exiling down in Egypt. They were refugees. They were political and religious refugees. And then as he rises up, he's not to go back to where he's from. He's to go raise his son in a place that he doesn't know of, a place called Nazareth. Don't you see, though, that from Joseph's view and Mary's view, they could look at their lives and say, everything that I'm seeing is, the facts that I'm seeing before me are contrary to the promise. How often does that happen to us? How often do you look at your own life and say, the facts that I see before me are contrary to the promises of God? I was sharing this week with the elders a place in Psalm 105 that, that was really meaningful and, and, and God spoke to me. It says in Psalm 105, verse 16, I believe, 13 or 16, in speaking of Israel's history, in speaking of Israel's history, it's, it's laying out Israel's history and it gets to the spot where it mentions Joseph. And it says that God summoned a famine and that he sent Joseph. He summoned and he sent. In the moment, I don't think Joseph felt very sent. What Joseph saw in the moment was calamity and corruption. He saw the calamity of the famine, and he saw the corruption of his own brothers. He saw the corruption that led him into slavery. He saw the corruption of the institution of slavery itself. I doubt that Joseph looked and said, Ah, I see, God is summoning this and he is sending me. But in God's perspective, as he looks back on it, as he takes the human sinfulness and human choice and he overlays it with his own sovereignty and his own good purposes, we look back and we say, it was summoned and he was sent. In the midst of the calamity, in the midst of the corruption, all the facts with our eyes in the moment show us that they are contrary to God's promises, and yet we know that God's word is sure and God's word is true. Joseph and Mary built their life on the word of God. They listened, they heard, and they obeyed. And they were blessed in the doing. That's what James will tell us. Blessed is the one. Blessed are those that hear God's word and they do it for they will be blessed in their doing. And when we get to the other side, my friends, faith will become sight. Faith will become sight on the other side of the trial, on the other side of the circumstance. We will be able to say like Joseph did one day in Genesis 50, 19 and 20. He says, now I know that what man meant for evil, God meant for good. But amidst of the trial, we won't see it. You're not alone. You're not alone in your circumstances in seeing how can God be bringing about his good will and his good pleasure in my life through these circumstances. We walk by faith and not by sight. This 
the other thing I want to say to us as Christians. Well, I'm going to move on. I'll say it at the end. The third thing, the last thing I was going to apply in just understanding the rebellion of our own hearts is just a quote. It's a quote from Thomas Nagel, who was a philosopher. He was a professor at NYU, and he's an atheist. And in the end of his life, I think he's, I think he's since died, at the end of his life, he was talking about this experience of, of rebellion and religion in his own heart. He says, I speak from experience being strongly subject to this fear myself, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that most of the intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. One of the tendencies it supports is the ludicrous overuse of evolutionary biology to explain everything about human life, including the human mind. This is a ridiculous situation. It is just as irrational to be influenced in one's belief by the hope that God does not exist as by the hope that God does exist. His point is that he does not want there to be a God because he doesn't want someone or something to have the reign and the authority and the rule over his life. He doesn't want it. The human heart, the heart of sin, the heart of rebellion is self-reliance, self-dependency, self-autonomy. And that's the rebellion. That's for point one. Point two, the grace. The grace. Where is the grace in this text? You know, one of the questions that I ask when I read the scriptures, when I look at God's word, I say, where does God's grace meet a human need in this text? Where does the grace of God meet a human need in this text? Well, I think it's in the last verse. That Jesus will be called a Nazarene. That Jesus will be from Nazareth. Now, why is this significant? Well, remember... In John's gospel, uh, there's this conversation and, uh, where Nathaniel, Philip, is it Philip and Nathaniel? Philip and Nathaniel? We just tell the story. And um, they think they found the Messiah. And they say, well, where is he from? He says, well, he's from Nazareth. And what's the response? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the point is that Nazareth was um, this, this boondock out in the sticks nothing kind of place, where even as the disciples said, what good could come out of Nazareth? It's sort of like Jerusalem was kind of like Portland, and it's sort of like Galilee was kind of like Gresham, and it's sort of like Nazareth was like boring. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Those arrogant Portlanders, there I go again. But the point is, Jesus coming from Nazareth means that God does not operate like that. It means that he does not operate according to the world system. He does not operate in a Portland Gresham boring kind of mentality. The kingdom of God is not about being the first and the best and coming from the place of prominence. 
Jesus going and being raised in Nazareth is just like everything else we've seen so far from this man. It's the one who was not ashamed of his genealogy to say that Ruth is in my genealogy. Tamar is in my genealogy. He's raised in Nazareth. He's raised in humble means. Shows that God does not work like that. His kingdom does not operate like that. Look, in the ancient world, the laws of primogeniture, the laws of, um, of inheritance always went to the firstborn son. Did it not? But in God's economy, in God's scriptures, it's Isaac, not Ishmael, that gets the blessing. It's Jacob, it's not Esau. It's Ephraim, it's not Manasseh. It's David and it's not his older brothers. God is always operating upside down, going to the weak things of this world to shame the wise. It's the women, the women in the stories of Jesus' genealogy, the women that appear to us in Genesis. It's Sarah, not Hagar. It's Leah, not Rachel. Rachel was the one that was beloved by Jacob. Rachel was the one that he really wanted, but it was through Leah. It was through Leah that the line would come. Again and again and again, he meets the barren women. The kingdom of God comes to the barren women. It comes to Rebecca. It comes to Hannah. It comes to Elizabeth. Again and again and again, the kingdom of God is coming to those that are weak and despised by the world. And it's the grace of God for Jesus to go to Nazareth to go to that backwoods kind of place that everyone would reject and to be raised there and to identify with these kinds of people. Look, no other religion is like that. No other religion is about Nazareth. Every other religion says that you must climb your way to God. Every religion says you must pull yourself up by your bootstraps, obey, and then you'll be accepted. But Jesus, the God of the Bible and the gospel of grace says, he comes down, he goes to the farthest reaches of the corners of the earth, and he says, come be my disciple. I identify with you. I am raised among you. Because Christianity is always about being saved by grace. Only Christianity, my friends, is for the weak. It's only for the weak. It's not for the strong. We can't come to him with Jerusalem-like dispositions. We must only and can only come to him with Nazareth-like dispositions. Nothing in my hands I cling. Nothing. It's the nature of the kingdom, my friends. He will save and he will save to the fullest and he will demand allegiance from everyone and he will save even you and me, but we must come to him with nothing in our hands. Every other religion says, this is the ladder that you climb to get to God. Obey and you'll be accepted. But only in Christianity does it say, you are accepted. You are loved. The ladder is God coming down to you so that you can now obey. It's always going to Nazareth first. It's always Jesus making himself the humble one. It's always Jesus Christ making himself small. Seek not in courts and palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable and see your God extended on the straw. The grace of God always comes to us when we're empty-handed and all alone, bringing nothing to him. Let me apply this in two different ways. First, what this means is it does not matter who you are, what you've done, 
and where you're from. It absolutely doesn't matter. I was reading a book this last week. It's called Hillbilly Elegy, and it's sort of this phenom lately. It's a New York Times bestseller, and, and it's, uh, it's popular because it sort of describes middle America, and it sort of is a... Um, it's sort of a memoir of sorts that explains potentially why there was, uh, why President Trump was elected. And it speaks to this, this ethos that exists in middle America. And the writer, uh, J.D. Vance, uh, he tells of his childhood. And he's growing up um, with a single mother who uh, was a drug addict. And he, it was just him and his sister. And there's just a lot of stories of violence in, in the book. And there's one part in particular where they're driving down the road and it's J.D. and his sister and his mom and his grandma, Mama. And um, they get into this nasty altercation. And the mom turns around and starts smacking the kids. And grandma's mad at mom for smacking the kids. So grandma's smacking mom. So there's just a whole lot of smacking going on. And um, they pull over and, and mom's actually arrested. And they're sitting in the living room. And J.D. looks at his grandmother, and with tears in his eyes, he says, Mama, does God love us? He's looking at the plight of the situation. He knows. He knows where he's from. He knows that he lives in a small town in Ohio. He knows that his father is long gone. He knows that his mother is a drug addict. He knows that she's physically abusive, that his grandmother's abusive back. And he wonders, does God love us? My friends, the truth of the gospel is that Jesus was raised and he's from Nazareth. It means that his grace extends to the uttermost. It means that JD, yes, God does love you. It means that Christianity is only for those that come to him in weakness, and it's the only disposition that we can ever come to him in. The second thing that this means is that any hubris, any pride, any class distinction, and he has to be rooted and routed out of our community as a local church. We come, as Paul says in Galatians 3, there is no Jew or Greek, there is no slave or free, All are one in Christ. And the church community, the local church, is the only place on the planet, is the only place on the sun where people of different uh, racial backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, can come together under one umbrella, under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And any sense in pride that we have in pedigree, whether it be letters after our last name, or whether it be zeros in our bank accounts, or whether it be anything else, just absolutely has nothing to do with the nature of the local church. And that kind of hubris and that kind of pride ought be rooted out of any local church community. Well, that's the second point, the grace. And finally, the fulfillment. The fulfillment. Look in your text here. There's a couple interesting, a couple interesting comments. Verse 18 says, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. If you look in your little footnote, it'll say that that's from Jeremiah. 
And in context, in Jeremiah, it's speaking of the period of exile. It's speaking of the Babylonian exile. And yet here, Matthew is reading this and applying it to Jesus. Head scratcher. Verse 15, which is probably one of the most difficult uh, New Testament uses of the Old Testament in the Bible. It says, out of Egypt I called my son, which, if you see, is a quotation from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And if you go and look at any of the, both of these references, you'll see that, that Hosea, he was not prophesying about Jesus being exiled down to Egypt and would therefore be brought back up so that Matthew could say, out of Egypt I called my son. Doesn't seem like Hosea is talking about that at all. But what is interesting is that Israel, corporately, and there's going to be a theme here that we're going to be unpacking at different points for the next couple weeks, as we see Jesus um, almost geographically walking through the places where Israel themselves went. Israel is known and corporately called my son by God. Now, what Matthew seems to be doing here in quoting both of these passages in talking about coming out of Egypt, which is through the Red Sea, and coming out of exile from Babylon in Jeremiah 31, is it seems that Matthew was applying some pretty high theology to us. It seems that he's saying that Jesus is the true return from exile. It seems like he's saying Jesus is the true bringing through the Red Sea out of bondage from Pharaoh and into God's gracious presence. But that just isn't high theology for us. Because, my friends, we must ask ourselves, what is the point of the Bible? What is the point of the scriptures? I said this last week and I'll say it again. One of the ways that we can relate to the Bible is in a way that will absolutely crush us. If the Bible is primarily about you and what you must do, then it will be crushing to you. You know, it's said that Mark Twain used to have a recurring nightmare. It seems a little exaggerated and hyperbolic and Mark Twain-esque, but I'll share it anyway. It seems that he used to have a recurring nightmare where he says that there would be this massive Bible and it would come down on his chest and it would be pressing and crushing him and squeezing the life out of him, he would say. And then he would wake up and it'd be all over. There is a way to relate to the scriptures that is crushing to you. If the scriptures are primarily about you and what you must do. But that's not what the Bible is primarily about. The Bible is primarily about Jesus and what he has done. The Bible is not primarily about looking at good stories from the scriptures and applying good moral principles to your life. The point of David and Goliath is not for you to find your own set of smooth stones so that you might slay the giants in your own life. The point of David and Goliath is to say that there is a weak one who will actually be the rightful king of Israel who will slay all the giants for us. The point of the Bible is to not look at Moses and say, how can I be a leader like him? The point of the Bible is to say, I am an Israelite and I am in need of a leader to lead me through the great exodus, to lead me through the the Red Sea of sin and death, to lead me into God's faithful presence. 
The point of the Bible is to not make the same mistake that Adam made in the garden, but instead the point of the Bible is to know that there is a second Adam. There is a true Adam. Who he, and he was tested in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. He was faithful. He was faithful to the end. And he did that for you. The point of the Bible isn't to say, am I like Abraham? Am I going to be like Abraham when I get, my, God asks me to sacrifice my own son Isaac? Am I going to be able to get up to the mountain and potentially slay my own son? The point of the Bible is to know that there is a true and better Isaac. There is a true and better Isaac who was slain for your sake. So that now you can know that God the Father really does truly absolutely love you. The point of the Bible is not about you. The Bible is not primarily about you and what you must do. The point of the Bible is primarily about God and what he has done for you in your place and on your behalf. And Matthew's telling us here, Matthew's telling us that everything that we've seen so far, everything that the Old Testament was about, was about the Lord Jesus Christ. Out of Egypt I have called my son. He is the real return from the Exodus. He is the real return from exile. And Jesus himself, actually geographically, like he actually goes to the places that Israel themselves went so that he might fulfill it for them. He might be the one that was faithful when he was tested in the wilderness for 40 days. He might be the one that was faithful when he was in Exodus so that he might be brought out for your sake and for my sake and on our behalf. He is the true fulfillment of all the promises in the scriptures. He is the true and faithful Job. He's the truly innocent sufferer who ends up saving his stupid friends at the end. Look, there's three characters in Matthew chapter 2. I'll close with this. There's the Magi, there's the King Herod, and there's Jesus. There's one who was, mer- who was shown mercy, the Magi. There was one who was judged, King Herod. And then there was one who was faithful, Jesus of Nazareth. And he was faithful for your sake. And he came to fulfill all that God's people should have fulfilled the entire time. And the Bible is not primarily about you and what you must do. The scriptures are primarily about Jesus and what he has accomplished for you in your place and on your behalf. Father, we're grateful for your word. We pray, Lord, as we continue to look to you for faith and hope and strength that you would meet us, that you would apply this word to our lives and our hearts. Help us, O Lord, as we come to the table. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our service continues now. We gather every week to hear God's word, to hear a word of grace to us, and we gather to celebrate the table together where God's grace is again made evident to us in a tangible fashion. The table is open to all who have repented of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone and have been baptized. Uh, Come up row by row, take the elements back to your seat, and one of the elders will lead us in this celebration together.